0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I
1: went from a sale of you know five
0: hundred thousand dollars to in debt one hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your Value Builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Next up, Rob Daly and Paul Duvall. The founders of Stelligent, which they sold in 2017, only to have the acquirer turn around and sell it again 18 months later for 25 Million dollars. In this episode, you're going to hear about the dangers of hiring gig employees, 1099 people that aren't full-time employees. The importance of specializing early on and getting over the hump of feeling like that's going to limit the size of your company. Rob Daly talks about the leachable partner and how that can be a tremendous rocket to your growth. How to find an advisor, particularly an M&A professional. Uh, Paul and Rob share some really interesting insight there, and you'll also get. A bit of a breakdown of the number of businesses they target on their long list of potential acquirers down to how many offers they got. And I think that proportion can help you think through, as you're developing your own shortlist of potential buyers, how many names you need to have on the list. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Paul Duvall and Rob Daly. Rob Daly, Paul Duvall, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having us. You guys built this company, Stelligent. I love the name, by the way. I just like <laughs> saying Stelligent. What, what did Stelligent do? And you got, like, I kind of know because I saw the note, but you got you to explain it in a layperson's way because I had to read it slowly about four <laughs> times before I really understood what you guys do.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, I can. I can start. Maybe Rob can can add some color to it. But I'll I'll start with the non layman's uh, version and oh, then great. get into the layman's version. How about that? <laughs> sure. But but we do professional services. We're a technology company. We specialize in DevOps automation on Amazon Web Services. That's and, where you lose me right there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> you had like, me I'll, right I'll up until there. professional yeah. services. But, so AWS is a part of Amazon, but it's, uh, it has a $30 billion run rate. Not a lot of people know that. And, and we're a, what it's called a premier partner with AWS. But what we do, um, so we have software and systems engineers, and we help enterprise customers deliver their software features to end users faster. And what we do is we automate the end-to-end software delivery lifecycle. So if you look at it from the perspective of, you have a programmer, programmer creates some software, and then you have some end users, the end users get the value out of the software. And usually there's this lengthy process of build, you know, once the programmer writes their code, they got to build it, test it, deploy it, and release it out to their users. Um, and so what we do is we help automate that process, uh, among other things, between when the programmer writes the code and once it gets out to users. So if you look at it, um, so the layman's uh, version of this, if you look at it from the perspective of an assembly line, so you have an assembly line. What we do is we help our customers kind of create the robots for their assembly lines. So it happens to be software, so it's not we're not you know doing anything on an actual manufacturing line. And then we help them incorporate the everyday practices to optimize these processes. So in the end, instead of getting software out to users every few months or every few weeks, it, it might be once a week or several times a day um, based on the work that we do. Got it.
0: And so would it be fair to say that uh, this automation, I think you refer to it as DevOps automation, is a, a methodology as opposed to your own software itself? Is it—is it a way that you accelerate this lifecycle or this Time to market, yeah. or is it actually your own proprietary product that you are deploying?
2: It's, it's it's yeah, it's definitely not our own. So it's an industry. It's sort of a, a mindset uh, methodology might be going a bit too far. But basically, the idea is you have uh, developers uh, on, on one, broadly speaking. By the way, you have developers on one side, and they're creating the software, and then you have operations on the other side, and they're operating it or ensuring that's stable. So you have a Creativity and the stability—sort of how you generally have looked at it in the past. Um, but as uh, as companies want to get software out the door more quickly and get feedback from users more quickly, the idea is to start to break down those silos so that so that everyone's working together. So when got I it. say broadly broadly speaking, you got developers. It's developers and QA. It's uh, it's uh, people that are doing database work. It's on the yep. operations side managing. You know that kind of. Uh, activities. And the idea is to uh, get everyone to ultimately work together and have the same goal so that you can have both speed and stability What uh, once it actually gets out to users.
0: Got it. And that's helpful. And so for people listening along, I think... Th- you know, think of Rob and Paul's business like a professional services company where they were basically offering a service to folks who are using a consistent platform, AWS. And of course, AWS would compete with guys like Rackspace is another big competitor in the space, right? Say those, those
2: so, uh, Azure and uh, yeah, Google uh, couple Cloud of, Platform. Yeah, those yeah, are the big ones. A few, few big platforms
0: out there, but you guys chose to specialize. Now, tell me how... like. The history between you, Rob, and you, Paul. Maybe, Paul, do you want to give us the backstory on on how Rob came to join the company?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so Rob and I go back a couple decades, um, and because uh, Paul, so, you started
0: the business, right?
2: So, Rob and Rob and I founded Stellage in two thousand and seven. It was it was based on my vision. And so that that kind of starts a little bit before I met Rob, uh, but I was working at a large systems integrator at one point, and it took two years. You know, we're, we're talking about nowadays you can do it multiple times a day. You can deliver the the features to users that quickly through all this automation. But way back, you know, when I when I started, uh, my very first project it took two years. Uh, And I was actually involved in the installation. It was a a really large medical logistics system. And I was pretty frustrated by that fact that it took two years, but I was also pretty excited by the fact that uh, the users were actually using what I'd helped build. And so based on that frustration, um, I got involved in uh, kind of what I considered the behind the scenes part of software development. Um, And ultimately I, I ended up working for a few other companies, uh, but in two thousand, I think it was, I joined the company that Rob uh, had co-founded, um, and I think that was around six years prior to that. It was a company called Number Six Software, and they had this great reputation, and I think I was employee number twelve or so. Um So I worked with Rob um for about three years, and then he exited the company uh, in two thousand and three. And then I, I guess Rob, if you want to pick it up from there.
1: Oh sure, um, yeah. So uh, kind of just uh, aligned with that. We at number six were very similar to Stelligent. Focused on one thing. Our thing was at that era was object-oriented software design. Uh, was a relatively um, what is now standard uh, in terms of practices. Uh, it was pretty poorly practiced or exercised, just as DevOps automation today might be poorly practiced by people without some real good expertise to support them. And um, so Paul came into uh, number six, I exited number six shortly after that. um, And that was actually my first first exit, learned a lot with that whole business, but then went on at that same, almost immediately started a second company, 5AM Solutions with some other people also uh, I'll call them post number sixers. And uh, Paul actually, I think he worked on a key book during this very time, uh, which ended up being the Jolt award-winning book called Continuous Integration. One of the another buzzword that you have to kind of swallow, but it's actually a, a, a key element to what Stellagen practices today. It's a it's always, uh, as well kind of a given today by most advanced software engineering teams. Um, but anyway, with five a.m., I was pretty tied up with once again, the application of good software engineering practices, but we dedicated ourselves to one domain, uh, life science research domain. And uh, that was kind of having its own life and its own pattern. When Paul had an opportunity to really launch Stellogen, he and I had already kind of founded a company just to, 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 you know, on the side to work up uh concepts that were basically improvement in automation generally and it it was called at the time automation for the people a a name that Paul came up with and coined off the rem stuff so the um anyway the short long and short of that is the company that he had been a cto at was actually folding and it was clear that they had a good start to what would one day become what Stelligent is and so we co-founded it together as paul noted but I was active with this other company, 5AM at the time, somewhere around 2007. And uh, from there, I'll say Paul was really ahead of the curve. Again, it, this is very visionary stuff. There were very few people practicing it. There was a, a probably a handful of really key people that were in Paul's circle at that time. That all knew each other and knew of each other. And you had to be, you know, as far as an, a company that was going to adopt this, you had to be an early adopter to be using what they were what they were doing. So that you have to, as you can imagine, when you're kind of ahead of the curve like that, you have a bit of a struggle because you're finding the early adopters. Things are very squishy. Um, it's a, it's basically for about seven years, I'd say. Paul, uh, you know, did great work with the people and the the people that he built into Stellagen at that time. But uh, the results were back and forth a bit because it was so early now he, of course, refined and refined and refined until around two thousand and thirteen when I was able to exit the other company and then join him actively with Stligen at that time right yeah let's let let's talk about
0: the the, the two thousand and seven to two thousand and thirteen phase of the business, Paul, because at that time you were running the company. Rob was sort of in the background a little bit what what just how would you characterize that period? If you could distill it down to sort of a sound bite, what would you say that those seven years were like or six years were for Stellgem's history?
2: Uh, a slog? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, I, I, I had a great time. I mean, it, when we started the comp- what we started the company on, what we founded it on, Um, is really what we do today, even though we're much, much bigger as a company. But what we founded the company on was ultimately to help enterprise customers speed, uh, speed up their ability to deliver software and increase the confidence that they were able to do that with. So the tools in terms of how you do that have changed dramatically. So when we first started working with, so we from the very beginning we were working with these enterprise marquee customers that you've heard of, um, and we were helping them do these things. Like Rob said, it in some time, in some cases it was a challenge. And then when um, I got introduced to the cloud, or in particular Amazon Web Services, but in the, the cloud in general in 2009, it was uh, you know very it was still relatively nascent. And, but when I saw how quickly that you were able to do, say get access to an environment, for example, and you know, this would be like a, a compute environment where uh, software uh, systems would run. What I was used to at the time and working with operations teams, it would take six plus weeks just to get a simple environment where you could run your software. And then with AWS, we were able to get that done um, Yeah, I could do that in five minutes. I did that at my desk and, you know, it was one of those aha moments. Right. Um, And then from then on, uh, that's ultimately what we wanted to do from a technical perspective. But as a from the, the business side, it was typically we would be working on one or two large customers at any point in time.
0: And what it's, would your revenue have been in, in, in and around that time, like that 2013, like, you know, number of employees or revenue, some yeah, proxy for size. So,
2: yeah. So around, let's say around, uh, when we started, we were in, in 2008 when we for, really first started operating, I guess into 2009, I think we were around 700,000 in the very first year. Um, in, Um, 2000 and we, and Rob calls this a thermostat where we had gone up in some cases to like 2 million down to 1 million. Um, but we weren't, uh, we had in some cases, um, you know, people that would work on small projects or or projects for stints, for example. Um, so we didn't have necessarily like seven employees at any given point in time, but we might have, you know, like a handful of people like Rob was talking about before. Um, so I would say around 2013, uh, when Rob started talking about, um, you know, coming to stelligen as a you know full-time and you know basically running the operations, being the CEO of the company. We were around a million or so. Got it. And then what happened?
0: It sounds like there was a bit of a an inflection point or a bit of a change in direction in 2013, 2014. Not only did, did Rob come in, but it sounds like you made some strategic decisions and changes. Maybe talk about those would you rob?
1: Oh sure. Well first of all, the the crucial ones that Paul made even before I locked in and we would talk on the phone but these were all coming from him and the you know focusing exclusively on the cloud again it can't be overstated because for the first time you could just focus on one environment not worry about uh, for instance a customer at that time was a large retailer that had its own server farms right and, and an entire organization dedicated to stuff that now is behind the wall right it's not it, we don't even think about it because it's all programmatically done and so the the ability to really build up assets and consistent ways of doing things was heightened tremendously by zeroing in on this emerging AWS, so it's crucial. Um, But the other things that I kind of, that I feel like I brought to it is, I was very comfortable taking a little more risk than Paul. Um, So he was hesitant to hire full-time employees. Uh, He had four, I think it was four total employees when I kind of kicked in with him around the beginning of 2014. Um, and I joked that, you know, one was a nephew and one was, or two, two, two others were there and, you know, they were really strong people, but that was the extent of the the permanent Stelgen And the issue with all these subcontractors was as just like with the rest of the thermostat, you know, a job comes in, you tool it up, you have these guys, they're wonderfully working together. It's like, like a, a gig to them and then they disappear. So with them goes your culture. Your your history, your knowledge, uh, and you know, no, there's no consistency. The first, so the very first rule we said, we made some real simple things. Just said, let's build a team. That'll be our that was our one strategic aim for 2014. So we're gonna we're not gonna be hiring 1099s anymore. If we do, that'll be a temporary to hire kind of situation. Um, and that was a very straightforward rule for 2014. In 2015, I think we said, let's let's make sure our processes are captured, and and we. We tool it up, and that was our next major goal during 2015. And then by that point, you know, you're growing and you're getting consistent and repeatable. And I think you know, again, all afforded by some real crucial decisions Paul had made just prior to me stepping in. And then we were just be, really be basically able to execute on what that v- vision was. And to, you know, again, I've been through this a couple of times with service businesses, doing that build that is not rocket science, as long as you stay focused, dedicated, thinking about the customer and so on there, you know, it's, if you've got something valuable, which is what was crucial, right? Having a really strong, clear vision about what we could provide as value. Um, the rest kind of falls in line.
0: Paul, I wonder if you make comment on, on Rob's assertion that, you were a little risk averse in 2000, leading up to 2014. Uh, I think a lot of people listening would relate to your apprehension around hiring full-time people. Maybe could you give us a little color on on that and how you sort of got over that maybe risk aversion?
2: Well, he's absolutely correct. I, I definitely was risk averse. Um, I mean, we had in some cases, we, we were working on this one engagement where we had uh, four people working on it. And then all of a sudden the funding, this was a, a US government project, the funding just completely fell through within a day. And so, uh, you know, it was experiences like that, that, uh, that caused me to, I think, be risk adverse uh, throughout the years. There were cases uh, early on working with just some of these large enterprises where uh, maybe the uh, you know, the checks wouldn't come through immediately. Um, and it was usually an administration issue more than anything. Um, so there were there were a number of times where um, the uh, sort of the viability of the company and this was early days. Like Rob said, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I was talking to enterprises about the cloud or about this you know new DevOps way of, of of doing things, and sometimes there would be you know blank stares and things like that. And so, <laughs> um, but. You know, going back to that time, I think, you know, one of the, as Rob talked about, one of the crucial decisions was really influenced by you, John. (laughs) Um, And that was, um, but this was also influenced by Rob. So even though Rob was not an active part of the business in terms of, you know, he wasn't an employee, he was basically an advisor, but he still had ownership in the company because we had, you know, co-founded it. Um, But it was the summer of 2012 and I was going into, a uh, prospect meeting and it was sort of an old school or old guard type of a systems integrator And i knew knew beforehand it's probably not a good way to go into a meeting but i knew beforehand that the you know the cloud and and that kind of thing wouldn't resonate with them um and rob mentioned he's like you got to drop everything that you're doing and i want you to get this book built built to sell it's going to change your whole perspective on everything so i did that and, and sort of the rest is history because that then influenced us to go all in on AWS. Because one of the first, you know, one of Ted's tips, the very first one is is don't generalize, specialize. And so we made the decision when we were finishing up with that large retailer in the beginning of 2013 that we weren't going to accept. Um, and when I, you know, we're, we're four people like Rob said, uh, at this point, we weren't going to accept, uh, doing any work unless it was running on AWS and we were doing all this enterprise work. And so I think a couple of weeks after that, we got this really large, um, company, a uh, networking company. And went to do business with us and they said, yeah, we're not going to do the cloud. Um, and so we turned, turned them down and I turned down a number of, uh, prospective customer, but what ended up happening, it took some time, and this was also around the time that Rob uh, joined the C- CEO, is really a confluence of events. It was both having that specialty, that niche, and by saying no to these pro- projects, we ultimately started getting more work at the same time that, that the demand within the industry was going up for the work that we were doing. Um, and then from 2014 to now, the the demand it's you know, it's a really high growth, high demand business. And, and it's in part having to do with the tight partnership that we have, uh, with AWS.
0: Rob, would you want anything add anything to that?
1: Oh, no, I think, well, I could probably go on, but I don't want to take it off track either. But, uh, yeah, I think Paul said
0: that it really well. I find it fascinating. First of all, congratulations. Uh, I'm, I'm glad the book helped. W- talk about uh, the, the fact that as after a little bit of time, the idea that you were specialized actually started to accelerate your growth. Because a lot of people are listening to that and going, you know, I, I could never do that, right? I, you know, I offer a bunch of different services. Uh, <clears throat> you know, there's no way yep. that I could drop all uh, of yeah. them to specialize so- in one. So the misconception,
2: yeah, the misconception is that they want to be customer-centric, right? So the customer is asking us to do this thing. But the way I've looked at this and the way we ultimately looked at this as a company is that if you get really good in something, if you're you know, one of the best, if not the best in that thing, and in our case, we invested highly in that, both in the area of DevOps, con- you know, continuous delivery, and AWS. like. Our entire company is 100% certified on AWS, for example. And by investing in that, when we say no, we're doing it in the customer's best interest. Because if you know if they say they want to use some other cloud provider or, or another way of doing things, in in my mind, we're actually serving their best interests. We're we we are being customer centric because we're making sure that we're uh, the best at what we're providing. You know, it's like. Uh, uh, You know, maybe a general practitioner saying that they could do you know heart surgery and saying, "Well, the customers, the the patient said they wanted heart surgery, so I (laughs) I would do it." Right? Um, So we 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 made it a point to say, "No, we're not going to do something unless we're the best at providing that capability that uh, to you." I'll I'll
1: add to this one. I think um, you know something that I've learned even since our first company was that it really helps to have what I call, and it's a misnomer, I call it a leachable partner. And when you're a little dinky services firm with great people, but you don't have any exposure, no one knows who you are, they don't see you, uh, finding good engagements is crucial. By actually becoming very good with something that your own people believe in, in this case, it was AWS, and committing to them, you can just see the the difference, right? They're a multi-billion dollar company with all kinds of reach, huge sales channel. And if you can do good for their customers and them, then the business just flows and it comes very, very naturally. And I think that that also goes very well with you need to specialize. I mean, I was just talking to a company the other day that is doing just what Paul mentioned that, you know, they're they're responding to customers, they're adding capabilities on a and not a haphazard way, but on a as-needed basis, and it distracts them completely in that same way. You know, again, this, the core stuff that's in Built to Sell, uh, to, it, not to do, what not to do. And, um, you know, I always give people this advice. It's like find somebody you really believe in that's, that you can dedicate yourself to and let them help you, especially in the early days, to get some great access to some great customers and have some really good experience, and, and you can't help but grow in that situation. So anyway, that would sound like a bit of a soapbox.
0: No, I love it. I love the leachable partner idea. That's a, that's a cool
1: sort of... It sounds like you're taking, right? And, uh, and so I like it because I can remember it. But if I want to give you a more boring name, I call it a mutually symbiotic strategic partner. You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stick with leachable partner. <laughs> I, I do too. <laughs> what other ideas, I'm now curious, what other ideas from Built to Sell did you apply?
2: Paul, I'll let you go. um, We'll say no to projects. I think that's one of them. Um, We we did come up with a three-year business plan. um, And then uh, there was the other one around two-year financials. And that was, um, so our uh, virtual CFO, which was Foresight CFO, um, which is part of the value builder system, um, they really helped get our books in place prior to us actually selling intelligent in, in uh, 2017. Um, so those are the ones that come in. There are a couple, uh, well, where big, we, we, we
1: really, a really big one though, Paul, and because I've, I've now been through with different business partners is that we both were able to specify our exit terms and we, you know, we basically did our envelope with our magic numbers, uh, but way back at day one and. We were fortunately very aligned when we did that, so it made the process of building the organization and achieving the exit a very known quantity. There was not a lot of, you know how sometimes people reach their destination without knowing how they were going to get there? We had a pretty crisp uh, and easy to handle situation because we had all of two decision-making partners you know organic and bootstrap so we didn't answer to anyone we defined the culture we defined everything we wanted ourselves makes it very easy and um, and we could just stay deadly focused on achieving that that aim and that that drove our decision making whenever we would get together and plan for the next quarter for the next year
0: really oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad you're working with the guys from Foresight and the um, who are certified value builders. So let me let me give our listeners just a bit of a, a backstory on module 12. So within the value builder system, there are 12 unique modules. Module 12 is called the envelope test, where you're really prompted to come up with your magic number, the, the basically the number your walk away number, essentially. And so it looks like both Foresight had you guys kind of think about that independently, and when you came together there was a reasonable amount of consistency around it, which sounds like it helped. Oh,
1: actually, actually reverse. We actually did that on our own before Foresight. We brought Foresight in when we were starting to grow and the the books were looking like they could really use some uh, strategic help. So we were looking for really just a a CFO at the time. They fortunately came completely aligned because the very first day we learned of them that I happened to be in a CEO coaching group so I met uh, their main guy Kirk McLaren and he had me take a value builder assessment which I did with respect to Stellagen and uh, it was you know it was just so aligned because Paul and I already thought that way that we just we we, we just knew that they were the right guys to bring on so and it was a fantastic relationship Plan to F- continue.
0: fantastic talk a little bit about the decision to sell um I'd love to know kind of roughly where you were at and I understand you sold in 2017. Uh, what was the first inkling that, hey, maybe maybe now's the right time to to to, to sell? Was there sort of an event yes. that occurred?
1: Um, a couple. One thing, we were probably about half of the revenue generation that we expected to be at the point we were going to start to consider it because I'm very comfortable taking a business to so like a $10 million value, right? But after that, it gets out of my my comfort zone and and also the fun zone starts to end for me because it gets too big and too, you know, can easily lose its uh, charm that a the smaller, more dedicated organization has. Um, so we were, we really thought we were going to go a full another year, but our, our space was so hot. You have to understand that even co- saying the word DevOps was kind of a, uh, something that made people's, uh, hair on their back stand up because they they knew it was such a marketing sounding word at the time it was starting being used. But we did adopt it. But that topic was a very hot topic and AWS very hot topic. Uh, come along, we'll say the spring of 2016, and uh, and we started getting so much inbound calls. You know, you always get these calls as you as you reach certain. Uh, milestones in terms of size, revenue, whatever. People start to notice you, and you start getting inbound calls asking about, you know, are you interested in selling? Need representation? All those sorts of things. We were getting so many of them, we just thought we'd be, we best take it seriously and, t- and take a look at it.
2: Well, and, and in fact, we got we got five. I think it was within a compressed period of time. It was like a couple of weeks around the beginning of the summer of 2016, yeah. and we started looking around, going, "Are is someone talking to?" to us or talking to someone about us it all came in so fast
0: <laughs> wow so you're getting these roughly where are you at in terms of size or number of employees at this stage well, i'd be curious to know when you yeah just I'll let yeah. You know
1: that. we 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 were probably in the 30 range where you know less than 30 were actually billable we, we were run pretty tight so we only had maybe four people that didn't actually get out there and bill um but we were probably hitting around 30 when we were getting those calls and we, although we were hiring fast from our perspective, being bootstrapped, we were probably building ourselves much slower than we could have had we had greater resources. right? So uh, we target you know just based on our current bill rates and so on, about fifty billable engineers would get us to we figured the revenue size that we thought would be respectable and and desiring uh, make us desirous of of a larger organization that was looking for a a pretty solid you know repeatable business. Does that answer the question? No.
0: Yeah. So you're roughly 30 employees at this stage? Yes. Give or take. Got it. Okay. And you're getting a ton of inbound requests. What happened next? What was your next step in this process?
1: Well, because we'd been through this before, you know, in different ways before. Uh, and we were working with our uh, Foresight C- or CFO, right? And uh, so we, and we were doing it specifically to prepare ourselves for what we thought was a year after. So we really just consulted with each other first about let's go find someone that can represent us, help us put together like a confidential information memorandum, you know, a book, uh, help us with the identification of potential buyers, help us filter those potential buyers. They would run that process and keep us apart from it. You know, the usual broker advisor kind of function that helps us to stay focused on the business while the broker advisor is out there. Trying to figure out like who's who's serious and who's not, and and what what can we find for potential targets for uh, acquisition or you know, our next step. So uh, does yeah. that make sense? So, so we basically looked at like six advisors, probably. Yeah. You know, we knew a few of them already in the DC area. Um, we knew we found some. This, I, and I'll, I'll give you a shout out for, not only for our advisor we'll eventually mention, but one that we did not go with actually helped to find our eventual acquirer. Uh, hosting, uh, and that was uh, Harbor Capital out in California. And somehow, uh, Magnus, uh, Cyrus had found found us there, and uh, it introduced himself as a potential uh, advisor for us. But in the end, you know, we ended up choosing MobileSolve and Steve Gaynor. So. But that, that process was probably a couple months, would you say, Paul? Just picking picking who was going to take us?
2: Yeah. So uh, you know, within that two week period around June, when so we had it was a couple of strategics that came after us. Also, some private equity uh, firms, and in some ways, you know, with some of the private equity, in particular, we were, I think, we were gently, gently encouraged, you know, well, you know, we can expedite this process and, you know, maybe not use an advisor, um, it, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And immediately, you know, again, we thought, okay, build a cell, get your, you know, get your advisor, and so that was the next step that we went through. And That ultimately, I guess, uh, yeah, in July, I think of uh, 2016, we spent. Yeah, probably a, at least a month or so interviewing different candidates, uh, that, that mainly I think, Rob, that you had found through your network.
0: And and so, how did you choose Steve over the others? You mentioned his name was Steve Gaynor. is that Steve right?
1: Steve Gaynor, yes. Um, he kind of he works out of Tucson, Arizona. Amazingly, he's I mean, he's been all over the place. Well, first of all, he was highly recommended by Foresight CFO, so he came to us. We didn't know of him until they brought him to our him to our attention. Um, but then we also got to talk with Steve and, and, you know, everybody puts together their own little pitch for you. And some people do a better job of that than others. Uh, Steve, uh, although I think our space was new to him, as you might imagine, Mobile Solve, the name we kind of laugh at a lot because, you know, his typical space is uh, telecom and mobile stuff, right? That's where he's usually helping deals happen. But, uh, but you know, he grokked what we did pretty quickly. He really got it. And he went Uh, really was a very crisp message back to us about what it was going to be. He wasn't the cheapest and he wasn't the most expensive, but he had a very, very solid way of describing what he, what he did in ironically, you know, typically I should say, Paul and I would go hear a pitch from a, a potential and, uh, we'd walk out and one of us wouldn't like one of, one of the others, right? The, uh, and with Steve, that was the first time there. Both of us were like, this guy sounds good. And we
2: knew, you know, it just sounded right. And and he was a late entry. We thought we were going to be making a decision based on whatever that first group of five or six or yeah. whatever it was. So.
0: And did did Steve give you a sense in that early conversation of what he thought the business was worth?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. And that was the interesting thing because, uh, you know, he he, ba- he basically gave us what he thought might be a a pretty big range but even his low end range he did not laugh at us you know when we we told him what we thought we could hopefully achieve or what we aimed to achieve
0: and and And, so what did he say he thought it was worth and what did you guys have in your mind that you wanted to sell for
1: well paul why don't you answer this one because i'm gonna let you let you kind of put it in your terms but um basically his range was our number was inside our magic numbers were inside of his range. So that's, that's the crucial thing. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. That's accurate. Got it. And so you guys, uh, we talked a little bit before we hit record, you, you, you couldn't talk exactly about what the, the business sold for, but you kind of gave a sense of what similar companies, roughly just a broad range of what you thought it might be kind of in the range of.
2: Yeah. I mean, for the type of company that we are and the work that we do and the high growth, high demand kind of work, that usually you're going to find a a multiple of two times revenue. So when we were hearing something like a two times revenue, and and especially based on our current trajectory in in terms of revenue, it was going to align with our needs uh, based on our magic number that we had. Rob, did we actually put in an envelope? I think we did a Starbucks or something
1: like that. Virtual envelope. You know, yeah, probably. Probably.
2: <laughs> awesome. And
0: so Steve kind of kinda thought that was reasonable and didn't didn't balk at that or fall off his chair when you said that.
1: Correct. As a matter of fact, he encouraged us to, to press on. So yeah.
0: And and talk to us about that Starbucks meeting. Because I, I I guess a lot of people listening um, will struggle with the question you know, what's your walkaway number? It seems like you guys were pretty aligned and you came to it relatively quickly. Maybe talk a little bit about the some of the the, the thinking that you did to arrive at that number.
1: Sure. Well, you want me to go first, Paul? Or- sure. Yeah. Um, so I've done the magic number with my first business as well. And and in that case, it didn't actually take it to an outside sale. I I had a, we brought in a CEO to run it for us. And because uh, we, we, my partner and I in that business uh, were what I would, would regard more like Paul in this business, right? Where the, the, the technical vision came from my partner and I both, but we were total goobs when it came to running a business. We had to learn everything as we went. And, you know, he always shied away from doing the business stuff. And I, you know, uh, part grudgingly and part because I'm not that great of a tech Actually, moved into more of the leadership side, but I was still completely uncomfortable. So, I brought in a CEO who, in turn, brought in a a great CFO who also had great connections to private equity. Um, So, the business was happily running. My partner in that business, it was a 50 50 thing, he was happy to just kind of kick back and do his thing and let these guys run. And I felt like, you know, I I think I'm done with this. I want to move on to the next thing. So, um, again, I've been chided by my uh, advisor Brian Burns that you know were coming up with a magic number and you know saying that this is my magic number can we make this work and I knew it was outside the bounds of what that company was worth but you know because there was such potential without a broker we did all this you know, great machinations and came up with fake ways to get me that number even though the the value was not quite there right so in a similar way coming into to Stelligen the experience the experience was already there about well, that's a good magic number, but now, you know, that was fun. But let's see if we can push it a little more, at least from my perspective, and get a little bit more out of it right up right from the out of the gate. Um, and then also uh, you know, just having an understanding of I've heard people say stuff like I don't want to work ever again or something like that. But I just wanted to basically um look at the business and go, I can either stay in this business and earn at what I call an entrepreneur's salary for 10 more years. Uh entrepreneur salary meaning you're not taking out of the business, you're you're totally reinvesting, right? You're bootstrapping. So you you reinvest as as you go and you're not giving yourselves huge vacations, huge salaries or anything like that, bonuses. Um, And so you do that deliberately because you need to have, and you're looking for that exit. There's plenty of people out there that never want to exit. They want that business forever. In that case, they take a different approach to make sure that business really generates the right cash for themselves personally along the way. Hopefully they do. Um, But the key thing here being that, you know, it's just literally a magic number that would kind of sustain our my family's lifestyle and what we wanted to do, given that I could be spending time doing something else. And so I, I literally look at what it takes to invest five, six, seven years in a business and then make sure that I'm getting that effective reward for it. But Paul, would you like to explain your magic, how you came to your magic number?
2: Yeah, um, I think we picked an even number ultimately as well. <laughs> but no I mean I think it was so what I looked at was you know enough to be financially comfortable. Um, I had no plans on um, retiring or you know going off into the sunset. Um, but I also had a reticence to build the company past a certain point um uh, and kind of like what rob was talking about in terms of how you know sort of the comfort level of how big a company and and 30 people or so was you know kind of starting to get to that point we are also well i'm sort of jumping ahead because of the the action, when we actually sold and when we started getting a, approached by people that wanted to to buy us because then that changed the view a little bit as well um but it didn't ultimately change the magic number um and yeah. Ultimately, you know, something in which uh, we were still comfortable, you know, uh, in, in terms of the the size of company, we were bootstrapping it. So there is we we knew that there would be some pressure, financial pressure in terms of uh, building it uh, past a certain point.
0: Got it. Got it. OK, well, that's helpful for sure. I think people would pre- do appreciate the the thought process uh, behind coming up with the numbers. So let's get back into the sales. So you engage Steve. Um what happened next? Did you? Did Steve was he successful in bringing you some offers? What do they look like?
1: Yeah, probably. How many companies yeah. we actually thought of and put in, down in a list might have exceeded a yeah. hundred. You know, yeah, and, something uh, like that. Yeah, and it, it, it got a little dicey at times. You know, you're wondering the, the very people that you think might be interested in you are the ones that. You don't necessarily want to know that you're thinking about this, right? It's a very, it's a touchy little situation. So we we kind of juggled with that for ourselves and kind of did some self-filtering on our own of ones that we didn't think would be appropriate or not. How so, did
0: you stick handle that? Because it's a, it's a really important question, right? So there are people out there who could be, it could be a problem if they know you're selling. How did you deal with that? Can you give me a specific example of somebody?
1: Oh, sh- sure. Um, there's um, Well, some, again, we have very close relationships with some, I'll, I'll call them frenemies, competitors, you know, that you know and you run across all the time. And when you have a close relationship with them, you tend to be more open and honest. Um, and I don't, I, I personally don't, I'm not afraid to have those conversations with those organizations. So you have to know know their their drivers and have them vetted at least personally to feel good about sharing things or not. Um, for others that when we perhaps didn't know any of the key players and we knew they were really present in our competitor set, um, it really was a pretty simple decision to just kind of stay away from them because they either weren't big enough to substantially, uh, identify something, right. They, they were really close in terms of size or they were right in our space and probably best not to, to go that route. How did so, you
0: determine if someone was too small to approach as a, as a potential acquirer, like, how did you yeah. do that, Matt?
1: If they were similarly, you know, the ones that were similarly organic and bootstrap probably did not, you know, there were, there was actually one of our offers was a, what I would call a roll up of similarly sized businesses, but it was being driven by a private equity firm. Um, so that was the, uh, the large wallet was out there. Um, but the, uh, in other cases where people are still solo and they're still relatively small, um, you just, you know I don't know if that's a good decision or not, but you kind of kind of dismiss them as they're they're not going to have the pockets to handle this. so and we weren't, we weren't looking for a roll up necessarily,
2: yeah, I remember we we did get some guidance from I think steve and and maybe John and some other over at foresight in terms of the size of the company too. Um, you know, I think we were targeting up, maybe up to a hundred million dollar range and not much past that. and then also not too small. where right it not too wouldn't great, not be too small, great. yeah.
0: Yeah, in value builder. We do this thing called the the shortlist builder, where we identify companies that are between five and twenty times your size. There we go. That's, right. exactly, yeah. that's
2: exactly that's exactly what it was. It, is
0: that what you guys did, shortlist yeah. builder? Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, in shortlist builder. It's, it's five to twenty times, and and that really, you know, if it's less than five times the size, it's sort of a bet the company decision. It means it's if you know, it's very hard it for value. a company less large to to make an acquisition, and any more than twenty times, it's really not going to move the needle. So that mm-hmm. it doesn't always hold true, but uh, but it sounds like in this case, that's sort of how they oriented around who the likely buyers would be.
1: That that's actually a lesson learned in this case because it, it, it's actually true that this was such a unique uh, service that some rather large uh, companies that dwarf that number uh, were interested and participated. So um, I think that's uh, it's so again maybe there was such a, either a strategic need or for for even you know, a component of their business or where they thought they needed to go, that that definitely came into play. But but yeah, we did follow that general guideline.
0: So you got to offer stage. How many actual firm offers do you did you get for Stelligen?
1: I think Oh, correct me if
2: I'm wrong, but I think it. Yeah, yeah, three. It was three. Yeah. So we, so we had ultimately a list of. Uh, so between August and November of 2016, we had that list that we were going through. I think it got to around 50 or 60 companies that we looked at as a possibility. And I think we ended up meeting. Oh, sorry. Uh, we had calls with. It was close to 15, maybe somewhere between 10 and 15 uh, customers, and then we had in-person visits during that point in time. Uh, um, and that was about, I think it was six or seven companies. Seven. Yeah. yeah, seven companies that we actually visited in person, you know, did the management presentation, that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, we got, um, in November, we got letters of interest. Um, and then in December, a letter of intent. Um,
0: and so- What's the difference between the two?
2: One um,
1: binding no shop, that once the letter of intent was the no shop clause kind of stuff comes out. Where the letters of interest, we were continuing to just kind of, you know, we're, we're hearing from people, but they were not getting commitments back from us it, to, to not keep looking.
2: Yeah, and they also they, they they painted the broad, you know, how much, you know, basically like a two-page letter that would go over uh, generally what the purchase price would be, you know, retention things like that, um, kind of a broad brush on what Terms. the deal would ultimately look like.
0: Yeah, let me talk directly to my listeners here. So, letter of interest, a little bit more vague. Letter of intent, uh, Paul mentioned, or excuse me, Rob mentioned the no shop clause. Essentially, with most LOIs or letters of intent, there is a no shop clause, where, which means that you basically agree that for a period of 30, 60, 90 days, usually due diligence, that you agree not to continue to market your company or negotiate with anyone else, that you are essentially getting into bed or engaging to be married with one and it's at that point you lose your negotiation leverage. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's not a decision you want to take lightly. And uh, clearly in this case, you guys did not do that. You, you took that quite seriously, it sounds like.
1: Definitely. One thing I'll note though, is going back to lessons learned, we, asked, we talked about, it, but did not require uh, like a breakup fee, right? Because once you lock into that one organization, you're kind of burning some cycles. And uh, you know if it doesn't go through it would be nice to be able to at least recoup the energy devoted and the cost. And we, you know, we were discouraged from doing it by our advisor, which was great because he's been through enough of these you know, only because he thought it was going to, you know, he'd read the situation and thought it would be wise to just skip that. So, so that it, it, I don't know if that's a lesson learned, but it was something certainly to be aware of that, that, you know, it's not a minor process to do due diligence and all these other things. And it's a, uh, it's something that it would be worth having. I think we we lucked out because we concluded it favorably, but had it not gone through, it would have been you know time and money lost.
0: Yeah. So a breakup fee. I think you're absolutely right. In, in a large enterprise situation, like IBM's going to buy, I don't know, HP or <laughs> GM's going to buy Ford, <laughs> there would definitely be a breakup fee paid if the deal didn't go through. In in the kinds of deals that we talk a little bit about on this show, I would say it's 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 rare. I don't think I've ever heard we've now done almost 200 episodes i don't think i've ever heard of a breakup fee being successfully negotiated by a seller uh it's something that that is almost always uh, uh removed be, you know because there just isn't the leverage from a seller's perspective to get it done i, I don't know if you guys have seen experience was that sort of what steve said or something similar uh,
1: probably no. That was very good insight, John. I, I had no clue about size mattering in that case. You know, as long as the fee was reasonable, but uh, absolutely, that uh, probably is where his head was at. Right, having been through it, and knowing exactly the same sorts of things that you know.
0: Interesting. So you got three three offers. What was as you read through the offers? What was your reaction? One
1: stood out financially. Right. That, that, and that's not the first time we've seen that. Movie. Somebody really wanted it. Right. And um, that was interesting. And they were really varied. There was there was some, again, different characteristics. Culture fit was phenomenal on this one. Uh, the proximity was really good on this one. Uh, the client base was good on that one. You know, it, it's a different, a different elements of what's going to make this a good deal. They were all very different. Paul, was there anything else that you want to throw in?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, some were also, what was really important to us as well is, you know, how our employees uh, would be treated. Um, and so there was, in some cases, there were incentives around that um, for, you know, some of the uh, key employees, for example. So one of the offers stood out
0: uh, financially. W- was that the one you ultimately went with? Yes, it was. And so what else made that the winning bid? So it was financially the most lucrative, but were there other things that made it stand out as being attractive?
1: Yes. No earnout was crucial. I mean, I don't know if this is a detail we're not supposed to share, but they, they arranged for timed payments, but uh, there was no, you know, a lot of deals are often uh, predicated on the fact that the growth will continue and you'll hit magic numbers going forward. Um, and, you know, once you're in another organization having control over that it kind of goes away. you you're giving up control. and uh, it puts a lot of deals at risk. You know and and therefore, a lot of what seems on paper to be reward, um, you know very risky. and uh, and so and, and and I understand the reason why an acquirer might want to put earnout kind of details on, but uh, that you know that was just something very specific that makes a deal look less attractive. And so in this case, you know, there was, there was, there was definitely a, a metering, but there was not a, a direct tie. You know, the, the company knew, knew very well what they wanted to do with Stelligen, and they, you know, were able to accept that that was not necessarily something they had to kind of dangle in front of us as a carrot.
2: Yeah. And I'll add a couple of other things. One is, um, the, the, the company hosting in this case that was acquiring us was, um, uh, had is a managed services provider. And so they had, um, you know, one of the things we had tried to, and it was elusive for us was to productize our services more, kind of standardize the services we're providing so that we could ultimately help more customers. And, um, you know, they had thousand plus, uh, customers, different types of customers. Um, but, you know, I I saw that as a potential opportunity for us to help even more because at the time we had probably ten customers, or so. And they were all enterprise customers and these, you know, relatively large projects for the <clears throat> the type of company we we are were. Um, so that was um, that was a draw. Also, the the people we met, uh, the executives that we met. I mean, through and through, just a great group of people, and so I, I thought we. Um, we were very much in sync with what they wanted to do.
1: I'll also, I'll add that uh, yeah. I let Paul make the final decision. He was the larger shareholder. And it, this, to me, was Paul's company, and I was simply a helper. Um, and so it, it was crucial that Paul made that call. And I can tell you, without being specific, that we did have differences of opinions about what would be uh, you know, one path or another, what would be ultimately the best. Um, minor and definitely agreeable with everything. But it was it was crucial that, you know, again, if, if if some of your listeners are out there and you have to make multiple owners happy, that can become really tough to make a decision, a good decision. Because once again, you have a point where you have to align. And in our case, it was crystal clear. It like Paul will make this decision. It's his company. You know, he, he's going to be able to drive it. And whether or not I was 100 percent in agreement or not didn't matter. You know, and, and and being able to go into it with that mindset made the decision making much easier.
0: Rob you sound quite deferential to Paul throughout the interview you've you've been very uh, quick to to make it clear uh,
2: he's he's usually not like that that's not really surprising
0: Paul was the, was
2: <laughs> the, the the real
0: uh uh leader and and visionary here um you know you've you've started a couple of businesses yourself and had successful exits and so i wonder if if um Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say that's refreshing for a lot of entrepreneurs. It's hard not to take credit, but it was, is that intentional on your, on your behalf that that you're taking that position?
1: It's genuine. You know, Paul's right. I'm kind of hard to work with just in case anybody's out there looking for somebody to help them out. But, but, uh, and Paul, I think Paul's quote today even was like, remember this, don't get into business with Rob again. (laughs) uh, other, Other than that, um. Yeah, I, I definitely believe it, and I, I'll tell you this is funny. You know, once again, you were on uh, Brian Burns's uh, Revenue Leadership podcast a while ago, and I, I finally heard, it, and I knew he was talking about me. And, and when he said my friend, my buddy, and uh, and he's wrong, by the way. When I exited, I knew exactly what I was doing, and I wanted to take it easy on this one afterwards and really think about. It. Uh, what I was going to do next before jumping in. But what I've decided, he's, he has this phrase he uses. He goes, you keep making these little sandcastles like a kid and then running through them, right? And uh, every time you sell them before you get you give them a chance to really mature and get bigger. And and he doesn't, he doesn't again, he doesn't understand the way our businesses operate necessarily. I know he, he's a very good business insight, but he's not in the trenches with it. So he doesn't get that. But I did decide, I, I've realized like, hey, you know, I do have a kind of a skill to, help people that are very technically focused to take away the unsavory stuff and contribute that kind of what what I think a technician typically finds unsavory and kind of fill in the gaps for the stuff that is either less attractive or maybe is just daunting or inexperienced whatever whatever you name the combo but it also allows the the person with the real vision the technical vision the value vision to be able to focus on you know Providing that, defining it, and helping to imbue the culture of the whole organization with the, the really meaningful stuff, and then this other stuff, especially for small services business, is fairly—I uh, don't want to call it—you know—expendable, dispend- but it's it's fairly straightforward. You know, as long as again, you just don't do something stupid, don't try to reinvent the wheel, um, you can you can move along pretty well, and so I, I think. It's absolutely true. I defer to Paul on on all of this as far as this is his business. The reason it was successful was his vision. Um, But I was just there to help kind of like give it some guide guardrails. And so moving forward, rather than run through another sandcastle, I've now got a concept of uh, putting business, you know, finding more pods, if you will, and bringing them in into the core business and let the core stay beyond an acquisition or an investment into the pod and let the pod go from a very small state to a very mature state. So get it up at over 10 million in value before it moves on and departs or detaches from the core. Um, I don't really have a title for what I'm conceiving there, but uh, I call it any stupid idea at the
0: moment as a working title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we might need to tighten that up a little bit. But <laughs> Yeah. That's I
1: been mean, advised not to use that name.
0: <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell me just to go back to the acquisition. So you had these three offers. One stood out, both commercially, but also to your point, um, Paul, about some of the the deal terms um, did you did you try to play one off the other a little bit and and get a little bit of extra value by by creating a little bit of a bit of an auction
2: that that really occurred, I would say prior to the letter of intent that's were you talking about prior yeah. to the letter of interest yeah. well I, either way I'd, I'd be just yeah.
0: curious to, to know how you sort of did that.
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't say we like specifically played one off the other. At least I don't recall that. I do know that, you know, our we we continue to grow, and that's one of the challenges, right? You're continuing to run the business um, as you're trying to sell the business, um, and I think during that time, um, I in some cases, um, you know, we were, for example, we had a a very large, well-known strategic uh, customer, a, a large bank. That we had signed during um, the the process, and so in many ways that elevated our at least our own perceived value. Um, but yeah, I don't really remember having one go off the other. Um, Although
1: I'll add though that Steve actually ran a lot of this process for us, ah, right? And he good. was he was having these kinds of conversations, um, and he's quite deft at, at um, you know exploit, knowing what to exploit, what not to exploit. Um, and I, I can almost recall that at least on a couple of occasions, he he did exactly that. You know, he he kind of yeah. made mention of of respective values, what was probably going to work, what wasn't going to work, what we liked, what we didn't like, and so on, to try and influence um, refinement and improvements in the office.
0: One of the things that I'd be curious about was the decision to focus on AWS. Uh, Obviously, AWS is a juggernaut. It's grown. Amazon, obviously, a massive and successful company that's just increasingly in value over time. How did the decision to uh, to focus exclusively on, on AWS impact the conversations you had with acquirers?
1: Every one of them was excited about that. <laughs> no question. Uh, one, only one, I think, was not truly dedicated to that. But
2: while- they wanted to. Know, yeah, they wanted to know if we were open to uh, working with other cloud providers. And I think the answer at the time was we were. That we were always exploring. We're always looking at the market. Um, but yeah, it was only for the most part. It was only perceived as a positive, positive, especially when it got narrowed down to a few.
0: Were you in any ways dependent on AWS? Did you have the flexibility to switch horses and go to Rackspace or one of the other, you know, Google?
1: Well, uh, actually, well, internally, we, we felt both the other two competitors, Azure and, and the Google Cloud Platform, were, were relatively immature and the business space was not that great yet. However, we were in open conversations with Google Cloud Platform to... Edu- basically, have some of our engineers get educated on the on on basically the similar functionality that we that where we work in and be prepared as that uh, competitor uh, came to came into prominence. And the same with Azure, we had people that were equally interested to to spend time with it, but we weren't being approached by Azure to. Uh, to do anything like that, at least to my knowledge, I don't remember us being approached.
2: Yeah, um, and the other the other part wasn't wasn't just technical; it was also the deep relationship you know had, that had been built over what was that six years, five yeah. years at that point, where we we had relationships across all facets of AWS, and that led to you know uh, in some cases uh, you know majority of the referrals that we would get would come through AWS.
1: But that's also why we keep we kept the awareness quiet, right? And kept it very much a Skunkworks thing. We we in no way did we want it. It was it's true. We definitely were dependent on AWS. It was a large channel, right? It was our leadable partner, and uh, and we had, as Paul noted, just built up a lot of good will and good relationships with a lot of people there. And there's plenty of AWS partners that are much more agnostic but you know we thought it was really important that we we kind of remain dedicated and and send that message publicly to to uh, all of our customers and prospective customers as well
0: That's helpful for sure. You know, it's it's a fascinating sale. So the sale went through, I guess, in early 2017, hosting bought the company. They ran it for a year or so, but recently, Stelligent was in turn acquired or hosting divested of it and, and Emphasis bought the company, uh, according to, I think, public statements for $25 million. I'd be just curious to know what your reaction was uh, to that announcement and and sort of what hosting did with it and and ultimately the Emphasis uh, acquisition.
2: Yeah. So we went through and uh, well, in this case, it was me and the new CEO. So um, Rob had left uh, Stelligent in after the integration. So basically around September of 2017. Um, and so in the beginning of 2018 or so, we went through a very similar process, you know, different advisor and company. And it was, you know, it was run through hosting and the private equity firm associated with hosting. And so we, visited again with probably seven different companies in person there was a lot done for us behind the scenes as well but um myself and the ceo of uh, emphasis diligent now uh, went through uh, this process and um ultimately the what we decided because when we were working with hosting, we were sort of going down market in terms of the, the types of customers we were working with and applying DevOps on AWS. And um, as a separate intelligent brand, we were focusing on enterprise work, you know, the same kind of work that we had been doing over the years and And effectively tried to make it work. How did we make this work with smaller and mid-sized companies? And we made a decision ultimately that we needed to partner up uh, with another company that w- was like-minded in um, in in the sense of the types of companies we're working with. and so um, yeah, we went through a whole diligence process uh, with emphasis. Um so yeah, I was very much involved in that along with uh, with our CEO Bill uh, on that. But now we have very similar types of customers, um, financial services, you know, large banks, things like that. Um, And so it's very much in line with, um, you know, the type of work that we do. Uh, And then from the emphasis side is really investing in the cloud and in AWS in this case. And so that's one of the reasons that we were attractive to them.
0: I guess maybe to put it another way, was there a part of you at all that thought, oh, geez, that's a big number, maybe we left some money on the table.
2: Um, uh, I, I, you know, Rob can probably speak to that a little bit. I, I didn't have, I mean, yes, I think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think about that. But I don't, when we went through the the process, you know, we had the uh, back of the, or the, you know, put your number inside the envelope number. And I, I felt perfectly fine with that. And because you know, there's a risk to continuing to bootstrap a company. I mean, every single month we were taking the profit from the company. It was fully bootstrapped, take the profit com- from the company, put it back in to hire people. And the way I've described it is that we were threading the needle along the way. You know, we had this high demand business and we were putting all that profit back. If a customer didn't pay us, you know, in some cases that could be, you know, an existential challenge. Um, but, um, so, no, I don't, I don't have regrets on it. Do I think about it? Sure. Rob, wh- what are your thoughts on this one?
1: <laughs> oh, you know, again, I, I'll, I'll put it on Paul that, you know, it was his decision. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> Here we
2: go. Rob was out of the picture in some ways at that point, too. But, it, yeah, you know, seeing the number. Of,
1: yeah. Oh no, but I'll tell you this, though, too, uh, John. Uh, Paul was working on a book very diligently. At the point where we got into this process, I mean, it was a, it was a, and and
2: I had stopped it. at that point, but yeah. Oh, I know,
1: but but he, he was really, you know, he's really dedicated to doing something, so he was kind of focused on on certain things that really kept him out of the day to day. Right around the time of that, the, the preparation for the exit, and then he came back in again to help move along. Um, but it was uh, it was certainly that, and then I think. I was able to put like I had a second line of credit basically provided to the company as a buffer. That's how fast we, we were growing fast, but not fast enough for a bank to really soup up our line of credit. So we were kind of committing our own cash at this point to kind of cover those kind of you know cash flow pains. Uh, we, one of the biggest things that our CFO did again was help us get better predictive tools in place so that we could uh, avoid any kind of crunches. Um, and really you know, have a good forward view of how things are going. But it was clear that without some sort of additional investment, whether it was more energy or more capital, we were going to probably be in a painful growth year because we were going to exceed our ability to comfortably deal with it. And I'll tell you this, that, that is the number one reason uh, Stullgen's been able to grow as it has uh, post-hosting acquisitions, because hosting was there as a wonderful... Um, Provider, you know, people don't see it day to day, right? But but you know that Steligen hosting was there to basically be that cash flow buffer as needed to help Stelligen do what it needed to do to grow basically twice its size in, in that year and a half. And so to continue with like 100% growth like that, you're going to get 100% uh, kind of offer improvement, right? That's, it's going to happen. And, uh, the, the topic is still hot and all that. So yeah, I definitely like Paul. I look at it like, yeah, it would have been nice, but again, you know, do the old, the reason I'm wealthy is I keep selling too early. And that's, I like living comfortably that way and knowing that, you know, we, we've taken our chips off the table. We've, we've, uh, made it more relaxing for our, our respective families. And, um, you know, there's lots of juice in us to go and do more stuff after this. So this is not a one bi- one business for life kind of thing for for Paul and I.
0: I love that term, Rob. Did you come up with that? I'm The reason I'm wealthy is I keep selling too early? No. Nah,
1: you know, one of our other advisors from the 5M era, uh, Jonathan Catherwood, also in Middleburg, by the way, phenomenal guy. He always quotes it as being a Warren Buffett thing, but if you Google it, you find a couple other names. So I just, you know, the internet's just full of crap, and I don't know, (laughs) I don't know, I have no idea what the real source is, but he often said that because he said the other thing he sees is too many CEOs are too confident that the chart's going up and to the right, and it always does, and what happens is it doesn't. We have a, a good friend that ultimately had a great exit from a company that he almost sold two other times over a span of like, I don't remember, 15 years, 20 years. That was a long slog for him, right? And it's because you, you get to a point, it's a good point, you know you're in good shape, you know the market's right for what you offer. And if you don't take that opportunity, you know, t- times could change. And 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 that that up and to the right mentality is just not healthy. It's, it's what we strive for, but you know, that's why it's so important that you start, begin with the end in mind, right? That magic number, was like something we felt was a good thing to do. So you can look at it and go, you know, again, I'll get beat up when I go to my next dinner with Brian Burns, right? He'll say like, you stole too early. But, you know, the point is that um, we we got there pretty, you know, painlessly and without a lot of, of uh, uh, setbacks. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was a good deal for hosting. And that's really good. Right? You're not only leaving with something for yourself, but the people that made the investment in you are also you know, benefiting as well. So that's, that's really crucial is to kind of leave a nice, a nice trail of successes versus somebody feeling they got the short end of the stick as well. All right. That's uh, another soapbox. Sorry. but
0: <laughs> No, just, just love it. And, and guys, I, I appreciate you sharing the story. Uh, you know, super fr- uh, grateful for the guys at Foresight for putting us, t- you know, together and, and, uh, it's it's just it's just a great story, and I'm so happy for both of you. Is there a, a place that you want to point people to if they wanted to uh, to reach out on some level? Uh, maybe we'll start with Rob. You know, do you take LinkedIn requests or is there a Twitter feed or what's the best way if people oh, sure. wanted to reach out and say hi?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm you know I'm kind of low keyed right now, but uh, a simple Gmail address: Robert Joseph Daily, Daly D a l y at Gmail. Um, my mobile's two zero two six five seven three two four six feel free to text. And uh, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'll definitely, I, I accept all requests.
0: Well, wow, That's the first somebody giving out their mobile phone number. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I hope that doesn't come back to bite you <laughs> in the ass. Oh, uh, yeah, I, everyone
1: at Stelligen somehow gave out my <laughs> number. And so I get calls from headhunters, salespeople all the time looking for someone at Stelligen. That's, that's, that's painful.
0: Paul, how about how about you?
2: What's the best way for people to reach uh, out to you? Yeah, best way people find me is on Twitter. Um, so the handle is Paul Duvall, P A U L D-U-V-A-L-L, two L's. And then you can find, I think my LinkedIn is off of my Twitter uh, bio. And and I
0: asked you earlier any relation to the famous actor Robert.
2: And you said. (laughs) I said that he lives, I actually see him at the coffee shop from time to time. So he lives about 10 miles away from where I live.
0: And it's super handy for dinner reservations. (laughs)
2: Reservations.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) But no actual biological relationship, as far as I can tell. As far as as we know. Yeah. Rob, Paul, this was great. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank thank you, you, John.